Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. Welcome back to another episode of 15 Minute Film Fanatics. You, you know the drill. This week, 1988's Beetlejuice, directed by Tim Burton. Music by Danny Elfman. Uh, probably Tim Burton's, I would say, I, I think at least his second best film. Not a, a two-way tie for first. Uh, sometimes, so we don't talk about the movies before we get on the podcast. Uh, sometimes I have an inkling what Dan is going to say, or I can think my way into Dan's brain. I have I have truly no idea how Dan feels about this movie, but, but I think that, unless I'm mistaken, that this was another one where maybe you'd seen it in theaters or the last time you saw it was like two decades ago. That's about right. I saw it about two decades ago, and maybe like parts of it here and there on like the USA Network or something where one of my kids had it on. But um, it was a, a pouring rainy day today, and in the middle of the afternoon, I said, uh, you know what, Mike wants to watch Beetlejuice, I'm going to watch Beetlejuice, and so I texted Mike and here we are. So what's your overall take on this? What, what, what brought you back and thought we should do this on our scary movie podcast season? Beetlejuice showed up as one of those movies that you watch in uh, Halloween season. You know, the, every, every holiday has a season now. So it's, uh, you know, it's just an October movie like featured. Right. I don't know if it was featured on Amazon or where it was. Um, but I remember uh, being uh, very tickled by this movie. And I, I think the last time I saw it was five or six years ago. Uh, and I remember enjoying it. When I saw Beetlejuice, I saw it on a uh, recorded over VHS tape that had been on UPN 9 or something with commercials. We used to have to fast forward through the commercials. And fix the tracking. But I, And fix the tracking, but I had it on, I had it on VHS. And I remember um, when I saw it five years ago and this time when I saw it, uh, thinking that a lot of the jokes were funny. And I mean, I, I think that there's just a virtuoso performance uh, by Michael Keaton. I think that a lot of, I think that it's, it's really funny and really outrageous. I like, uh, I think it did a lot of things that like um, Jim Carrey in The Mask was trying to do, you know, that trying to bring ca a cartoon to life um, or some kind of cartoon personality, but uh, obviously is a much more successful movie. I also think that Tim Burton tries to get exactly the right thing into his box, like his remake of Dark Shadows is no good. That just he's made terrible movie after terrible movie after terrible movie and has missed the point a thousand times. Um, but I think that really that he, he at least nailed this one. In in other words, I think it, you but you don't have to like the vision that's in Tim Burton's head. But I think that he got exactly what was in his brain onto uh, celluloid. Are you saying you didn't like Dumbo? No, I'm just kidding. All right, no, <laughs> um, no you know, agreed. I, I I felt the same exact thing watching it two hours ago. I'm like, like this is Jim Carrey before Jim Carrey. And it reminded me of, you know, this was 88. It reminded me of in 1982 when Michael Keaton kind of broke into the movies and was in this movie called Night Shift with Henry Winkler where they, they decide to run a prostitution ring with Shelley Long out of a morgue. And he's like, he, he bursts on the screen like Mr. Wacky and going around with all this adrenaline. And so it seemed like it was, a, it was like a, it was like a, 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 an exaggeration of an exaggeration. That's what Beetlejuice is. And the movie's an exaggeration of an exaggeration about all these horror movie tropes and stuff we could talk about. It's funny that you said about um, what you said about the remake of Dark Shadows because I'm always I'm always fascinated that he gets any money. And maybe I'm a philistiner, but um, he's he has a lot more misses than hits. And if you look at Tim Burton, and he makes a movie a year. And I just keep wondering, like, who's financing these movies? They all look the same. And except for a few isolated things, now I'm old enough to remember waiting in line for hours to see Batman. And this is a classic example of that. All the money is spent on set direction and costumes and stuff, but the, the script is almost like it's been written on napkins and made up as they went along. 
I think this movie is different though. I, I think this movie does, does not faulted by the things that have faulted, you know, um, Dark Shadows and Sweeney Todd and Charlie and Chocolate Factory and, you know, um, you know, uh, Corpse Bride or all these other like, you know, he's like edgy and dark. Um, but I think this and Nightmare Before Christmas are the only ones that I think hold up. Well, I also think that, I mean, look at the lineup. I mean, the lineup is like a, um, it, it's funny now to think in 2020, look at that lineup. But for 1988, it's got Gina Davis. It's got um, young, fresh Alec Baldwin. Fresh, young um, Alec Baldwin. Michael Keaton is going absolutely crazy. Uh, a lot of people are, are remembering how funny Catherine O'Hara is now. Um, you know, not to mention uh, uh, everybody in this film is good. Right, because of Shit's Creek now. Everyone's like, oh yeah, but she was- she Yeah, was but he, I mean, even the, even the bit players are funny. Right, both of them. All right, I'll see you in part two. All right. Hi, welcome back. So in part two, we'd like to talk about a moment that for us epitomized the, the viewing experience. Mike, what's yours? Well, I like a lot of moments. I mean, you remember different moments uh, as an adult than you do as a kid. So I remember as a kid being very impressed um, by the guy and his wife standing in the in the office practicing what they're going to do and making uh -huh. their faces, uh, making their faces shape shift. It for, for me, if if you were going to put a gun to my head and say, make me watch 10 the best 10 minutes of Beetlejuice. I think that it's a Beetlejuice in the graveyard talking to the two of them for the first time and introducing himself, which is really just, uh, it's really just a setup for Michael Keaton to be uh, wild and crazy, which I, I think that uh, that was that was very funny. But, you know, I, I don't think anything embodies the movie as well as the poltergeist scene where um, he uh, they take over the people's bodies um, at, yeah. the, at the table uh, and make them dance uh, to the uh, to the Deo song. <laughs> to the banana boat song, yeah. That was my moment, but not just because I think that's the most well-directed scene in the movie. And that scene really, that scene is very funny and it does hold up. But I think what's funny about that is that, not to, not to explain the, the world what's funny, but it's it, it occurred to me that, you know, all of these movies we love are about the, the ghosts uh, you know the, the the living are trying to fight the ghosts and in this one it's you know the ghosts trying to fight the living so everything is upside down and that all of these things it j and i can't believe the coincidence that we just finished our show about hereditary and as soon as it starts it opens with a miniature you know all these miniatures just like hereditary and it has things from that movie like the possession right so in in regular horror movies if you're possessed what do you do you throw up on a priest or you do something horrible or you um you you, you crawl on the ceiling like a tony clinton start banging your head on the like you know possession is supposed to make you do terrible things but in this one the, the, the demonic possession makes you sing that the harry belafonte song which i think is like really inspired and also like um the seance so when they have the seance and then they start to die and he says, you know, so I think that's kind of funny that we saw the seance scene in Hereditary where she starts crying and it's so horrifying. But here, um, all of those rules kind of go out the window. And that's why my moment, I'm leading up to my moment, is that when uh, the thing that actually made me laugh the loudest as a movie fan is when Winona Ryder looks down and he says, okay, you gotta, I gotta marry you. We gotta get married. And she says, why? And he goes, I don't know. I don't make the rules. I don't have any rules. And that, and that you just accept it when you watch the movie. Like, well, of course it makes perfect sense. He's got to marry somebody who's alive. And that's how he gets out of the, you know, the, the afterlife and stuff. And that um, supernatural movies especially are filled with rules. Like we talked about this with Poltergeist. Like, you know, if you move the house, you know, but you leave the, if you move the gravestones, but leave the bodies, well, of course you're going to, you know, cause a haunting. And that the movie kind of like just, it just lets you accept them all. And I love how it turns the possession and the seance on its ear. Yeah, my I think my favorite part rewatching and, and it, 
So the movie has some fake rules. The movie has some some rules for the purpose of of explaining, like you have to draw the door in chalk and and right. but the, three times. The, one of the you know one of the explicit but then also implicit rules is that um, what you're like in life determines what's going to happen to you after you die. So the two the two of them are uh, really nice. They're domestic. They truly love each other. They love their surroundings. That, that's why they get to stay where they are. Right. You know, versus all these um, you know all these people that have these horrible things. Um, they, they, they live in weird, disfigured puppet land, um, you know, where they where they obviously belong. Um, and that the living have have nothing going on. You know, part of part of Winona Ryder's rebellion uh, is that like all teenagers, she thinks everything is lame. But you know, she becomes a much more interesting character when she starts to take things seriously. And that the the scenes where you like her the best are where she's telling her parents and their friends to why don't you just leave them alone? Because they, you know, instead of rolling her eyes and say, "Ugh," and you know, it 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 gives her something to fight for, which is also really the premise of the entire film. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'll see you in part three. We're going to pause here because we just want to tell you something. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. The first point is it's free. Yeah. Second, they have all the tools that you need to create, record, and edit your podcast right on your phone or your laptop. Third, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other places. You pick up sponsorships, you can make money from your podcast, and there's no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Always be closing, Mike. Always be closing. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. All right, welcome back. So we've discussed moments really quick, but everybody knows what the best moments in Beetlejuice are. And, you know, nobody, I don't think anybody's going to claim that it's a great cinematic masterpiece, but it is a, it's a cult movie for a reason. And it's certainly, you know, uh, Tim Burton's top two. But Dan, what are your big takeaways from the movie? Well, my, you know, nothing that you haven't said before, but I was going to say what's funny about sometimes we talk about the ending in segment three is that it really is a happy ending for everybody because the, the happy ending for, a, for um, the exorcist is she's not possessed anymore, but it costs Father Carriage's life. The, you know, the, the best happy ending you're going to get in a ghost story is that either the ghost is gone, but at some terrible cost, or that the family's reunited in the holiday, and like we said, at Poltergeist. Um, there's certainly no happy ending in, in Hereditary, which we've talked about before. But in this one, it kind of brings you back to that kind of, um, it almost feels like a, a, a movie from the 40s or the 50s, where at the end, the, you know, the family's reunited, both the ghost family and the real family, the biological family, and they all, I can't believe I just said biological family, It's kind of, but because um, he's a bioexorcist, but they all come back together. She gets to sing and levitate at the end, and, and that the movie doesn't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore, about how, you know, how can they coexist? Everything's fine. They sing the clips on music, credits roll. Well, because uh, again, you know, kind of the, to the point that I made about, or the point the movie makes about how you live your life is how you live your afterlife. There's, there's actually a really nice um, leitmotif of that in the movie, which is that uh, Charles Dietz, the guy who moves in to get rest and relaxation, and even his daughter says, there's one thing that uh, Charles Dietz doesn't do, which is uh, leave, uh, he doesn't leave equity on the table, which is really funny for teenagers to say that, is that he sees this, um, he sees this misused building across the street, and kind of the thing that kicks off a lot of the plot is trying to get a rich, uh, you know, VC down here to, to yeah. fund this to fund his project where he's supposed to be relaxing, but he can't help himself. So part of the point is even while you're alive, you know, you're, the way that you're living, the way that you see things determines your reality, which is when you're dead, that's literally true. And they, you know, the, the, the movie can't let you get away from that at all. 
So yeah. it, it makes sense to me that they would have a happy ending because that's actually who they are and how they see things inside. And part of the happy ending is also, you remember in the very beginning is that um, the realtor tells Alec Baldwin and Gina Rollins like, oh, this would be better if he had a family. And there's that moment of embarrassment because they can't have kids. But at the end, she comes home and she's telling the ghost about her report card and about the grade she got in science and the grade she got in math as if Alec Baldwin, right, and Gina Davis were her parents. So it's kind of like they get to, they get to kind of adopt a living child and, and kind of raise her. So that's kind of like a little, a little another little victory for them. What do you think of this as a family movie, though? I thought I thought a lot of the, I mean, I, I would say that the humor is like, you know, fifth grade and above. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, I, I just think, I just, you can't see where the, you can't see how this, I think, was put together. It's just together. I find that impressive more than any particular joke. And I think it's a very difficult thing for, for him to replicate. I think a broken, you know, he's just a blind squirrel uh, who found two nuts in his entire career. It's been like 30 years. <laughs> 